It's Thursday, March 21st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. There's a very interesting legal fight playing out right now. Phase one is done, and we're moving into phase two. A jury has just found that a man named Edwin Hardiman developed cancer from exposure to Roundup weed killer he used in his yard. Hardiman developed non-Hodgkin lymphoma after using Roundup for 26 years on his yard. Sarah Randazzo, legal reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for details of the case and what to expect for phase two of the trial, determining what liability Bayer and Monsanto have. Next, an incredible story about finding family and living with the new reality that you might have 50 brothers and sisters. Jacoba Ballard always knew she was donor-conceived and wanted to find some half-siblings who might have had the same donor. Her investigation led her to find other siblings and something unexpected. It all pointed to one man, Donald Klein. Klein was a fertility doctor who was accused of using his own sperm to impregnate women who had come to him for artificial insemination. Sarah Zhang, writer at The Atlantic, joins us for this crazy story and how all the newfound siblings feel now that the truth is out. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I feel like when I first started reporting on it, I thought, well, does something cause cancer or not? And I thought, don't scientists know? And there's a way that they can just give it a stamp, yes or no. Joining us now is Sarah Randazzo, legal reporter for The Wall Street Journal. We have an interesting case that is halfway resolved right now. And I think this is an important one to talk about. I think a lot of people don't know what to think when they hear this story. They might be a user of this product. And people get worried when you hear things like this. A jury has found that a man has developed cancer from exposure to Roundup weed killer that he used in his yard for, I think, decades, they said. It's the second case of its kind to go to trial over this. Phase one is done. The jury said that Yes, using the Roundup did cause his cancer, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And now they're going to be going on to phase two to see what kind of liability the parent company, Bayer, who bought out Monsanto, what kind of liability they have in this case. Tell us about it. It's been a pretty remarkable six months in this litigation. These cases have been mounting for a few years, but in August, we saw the first case go to trial and a jury there returned a $289 million verdict in favor of a former school groundskeeper who also said his non-Hodgkin's lymphoma was because of Roundup use. That verdict later got cut down, but still to a sizable $78.5 million. And so then this was now the second case to go to trial. And so a lot of eyes were on it to see if a jury would react similarly. And unlike in the first trial, in this one, the case has been split in two. And like you said, this first phase was solely looking at the science and whether it caused the man's cancer. And the second phase will look at potential Bayer is facing lawsuit right now in the U.S. from about 11,200 farmers, home gardeners, landscapers. That is a lot of people who are uh, claiming that they got sick from this Roundup weed killer. Yeah, it's a pretty remarkable number. And the way that these big litigation matters work these days is that the numbers can ratchet up very quickly every time there's a verdict. So I think last year it was maybe around 7,000, which is still high. And then you get that August verdict and then the number of people hearing about it who say, oh, I have non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and I use Roundup, it starts to grow and then the numbers start to go up. All of those 11,200 claims likely won't all be going to trial or all receiving a payout, but the sheer volume adds to the pressure on Bayer and Monsanto. This latest case was about Edwin Hardiman. Tell us about him and then tell us about Roundup and the active ingredient that is at the center of all of this. The plaintiff in this case was a man named Edwin Hardiman who contracted non-Hodgkin's lymphoma a few years back and is fortunately in remission now. But 
He said that he used Roundup on his quite sizable property up in Sonoma County for about 25, 26 years, and that he would spray it for three or four hours at a time on days when he was out spraying to control weeds and poison oak on his property. And Roundup is a very popular weed killer, and the key ingredient is called glyphosate. And it was developed by Monsanto, I believe, in the 90s, and it's been used very widely by farmers and, and on a large agricultural level, as well as by home gardeners and home farmers. And so it's one of, I think, the most popular weed killers out there. And this ingredient glyphosate has come up for a debate in recent years on whether or not it's dangerous to people. Yeah, I mean, that's very interesting, uh, the amount of time and the duration of time that he was using it, because that was my first question. is like, well, how much are you using? How much are you breathing it in for this to actually cause some harm to you. And if he's out there for three or four hours a day, he's got a big property. Okay. That lends itself to, to being a lot more believable that you're inhaling this a lot. It's going to cause you some problems for their part. Bayer and Monsanto say that this glyphosate is not carcinogenic, but the science there is a little murky. Nobody knows what to believe at this point. That's right. And that's what makes these cases so interesting and so hard to wrap your brain around because I feel like when I first started reporting on it, I thought, well, does something cause cancer or not? And I thought, don't scientists know? And there's a way that they can just give it a stamp, yes or no. But as I started learning more about the way science develops within the scientific community, this is still something that there's no consensus on. And then we bring these different scientific studies into court that each show different things, some saying it's safe, some saying it's dangerous, and the jury then has to wade through all of that. But it takes a long time for science to develop to the point where anything's definitive around whether something is carcinogenic. I mean, for now, the jury did decide that it is carcinogenic to humans. In 2015, the International Agency for Research on Cancer said that this glyphosate probably is carcinogenic to humans. So I'm sure a lot of this second phase of this trial is going to have to do with some of that and more actually how Monsanto and Bayer allegedly tried to change public opinion about it. That's kind of what phase two is going to be. There's a lot of evidence that the plaintiffs have that they say show that Monsanto knew about potential dangers, tried to hide them from the public. They also have allegations that Monsanto ghost wrote certain scientific papers to look favorably on glyphosate. I mean, it's such a crazy story. On one side, you know, you have a very popular product that a lot of people use. So uncertainty is going to flare up there. On the other side, the amount of money that is involved in this. Bayer bought Monsanto for like $63 billion. They've lost more than $30 billion in market value since the first trial on this. They're saying that if they settle out, it could be anywhere from 5 to $6 billion. The second phase is going on now. So it's going to be very, very interesting to see what the jury decides on this part of it. Sarah Randazzo, legal reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Jacoba told me he kind of brought this notepad and he had all these Bible verses on them. And one of them was Jeremiah 1.5, which goes, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. Um, And this really kind of pissed her off because she felt like he was trying to use her faith to manipulate her. Joining us now is Sarah Zhang, writer at The Atlantic. Wanted to bring you on to talk about just your really great article called The Fertility Doctor's Secret. This is a story of Donald Klein. He was a fertility doctor who used his own sperm to impregnate women who came into him for artificial insemination procedures. This happened a few years ago, and he went through court, and he was charged, and he he had his punishment and all. And we'll get into all that later, but let's start off just for people that do not know this story, just a few basics of who Donald Klein is and, and what he was accused of. 
I'll just start by saying that when I first started reporting this story, I definitely was like, oh my God, what a weird story. You know, like what kind of weirdo would do this? But the more I got into reporting it, the more I understood the history of how donor insemination worked um, right. and the way doctors kept secrets from their patients, I mean, the more it's like... Just to, just to jump on right at this moment, I mean, yeah. the first success in artificial insemination had a bunch of lies behind that one also. And you wrote about it in an article, and it's great. And this this story is not just about Donald Klein. It's about his children also who found each other and have to live with new realities of now that all this has been unearthed. So, like I said, it's a great story. But let's start with Donald and what the accusations were against him. Donald Klein was a fertility doctor in Indianapolis. He retired a few years ago. He's in his 80s now. And for a while, he was sort of the fertility doctor in Indianapolis. If you need a fertility treatment, you, that was probably a guy he, you went to. And so what happened is that unbeknownst for all of his patients who are coming to him for donor sperm, and a lot of these cases, the uh, the men, uh, the husbands were infertile. Instead of actually getting a donor, as he promised, he had said it would be a medical resident. He had apparently been using his own sperm. And we don't know exactly how many biological children he has. He said he did it about 50 times. There are currently 50 people who've been coming through DNA tests that are his biological children. In between publishing the print magazine and like when the like few weeks we put it online, two more people were found. Wow. So we really don't have a good sense of exactly how wide the scope is. And the thing is like all of these kids, a lot of them say still live in Indianapolis. They, you know, their paths have crossed in weird ways and then by now they found out they're half siblings. That's one of the weirdest parts of the story is how their paths have crossed throughout the years. I think one of the kids sold one of his half siblings like a lawnmower through a garage sale. And, you know, this was before they knew it was happening. So let's start with the siblings now. Tell us how the kids, about 50 of them now that we know, how they started to find each other and connect the dots that this all happened and that their family, quote unquote, is bigger than they thought. Yeah, so this sort of all started around 2014 with a woman named Jacoba Ballard. Jacoba was someone who she had known since she was a kid that she was, her parents had used a sperm donor, so she knew she was donor conceived. And she was sort of interested in not necessarily finding out who her biological father was, but she was interested in, you know, maybe finding out other half siblings. And she thought she, she told me she thought she'd maybe find one or two. So what she did was that she went to a forum for people who are adoptees or donor conceived, and she knew who her mother's fertility doctor was, Donald Clark of course. And she met another woman whose mother had gone to the same doctor and who knew another woman who had a sister. So now there were four of them. They thought, oh, you know, why don't we all get tested? You know, who knows? We might be half siblings. So they all take 23andMe tests. The test results come back. They are all half sisters. And what's more is that they have four more half siblings on 23andMe. So that's eight half siblings total. And right away, this kind of sets off some alarm bells because Dr. Klein had supposedly told patients that he used any single donor only a few times, and now there are eight. And he said that they're supposed to be medical residents, but their ages were ranged long enough that it would have been more than any single person would have been a medical right. resident. So they started doing something that is actually kind of a lot of attention now because of the Golden State Killer, which right. is using DNA to look for family trees. The whole notion of familial DNA and building the family tree profile just to trace everything back as far as you can. And little by little, Jacoba and, and her newfound siblings started to realize that everything started pointing to Donald Klein in more ways than one. It was just not a coincidence. And 
And they started contacting all of the other siblings that they found that were part of this. And a lot of them thought it was a scam at first. They're like, you guys are just crazy. This is not happening. But everything just snowballed so quickly after that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, imagine if you got a message from a stranger being like, hey, I'm your half sibling. And, you know, as far as you knew, you had a perfectly normal family. Your father and your mother got married. They had kids. Like, wouldn't you also think that this is kind of crazy? <laughs> right. um, and, and this leads so, us yeah. and this leads us to the big first meeting between Donald Klein and all of these new half siblings that have found each other. Donald Klein's own son actually set up a meeting with all of them and it just got so awkward. Donald Klein was trying to quote some Bible verses to them, trying to maybe justify things. Jacoba, for her part specifically, just was not having it. Can you imagine this is kind of like the first family reunion, like the first time you're meeting a biological father? It was kind of interesting little detail about how Klein's son ended up getting in touch was kind of just illustrates how small this world is, is that he actually knew Jacoba's priest. He was also Catholic. And I guess he thought that there was a connection there and that, you know, it's actually also his half sister. And I think they were interested in getting to know each other a little bit or at least just understanding what happened. So Dr. Klein comes to this meeting. Jacoba told me he kind of brought this notepad and he had all these Bible verses on them. And one of them was Jeremiah 1.5, which goes, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. And this really kind of pissed her off because she felt like he was trying to use her faith to manipulate her. And this meeting, <laughs> as you can imagine, doesn't go so well. Right. They don't really feel like they got any answers. He kind of admits he used it maybe like nine or 10 times, which, you know, as we now know, is not really the case. Yeah, it was uh, like almost 50. So <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. From this meeting, obviously, emotions are flaring on a lot of different sides, and it just leads us to a lot of big questions that I don't think were ever answered. I'm not really sure what made him do this. He was one of the premier fertility doctors at the time. You know, a lot of people were going to him. And so what would make him do this? And I know that the siblings had a real hard time trying to process this specifically. You know, was it a sexual thing? Was it a religious thing? Was it a power thing? This is the question that everyone has, right? So I, I will just uh, say for our listeners that I did try to talk to Dr. Klein and he did not want to talk to me, in part because he's also being sued for his actions. So I understand why he didn't want to talk. So, you know, I don't know the single answer. What I will say is that I think if you go back to how donor insemination worked back in the 1980s, it's very different from how it is today. There's like no catalog of frozen sperm you can order online. He actually had to go and find the medical residents and ask them to donate. And because had to use fresh sperm. So the sperm had to be like, you know, within an hour. Uh, I had to kind of time it when, when the patient was coming in. It was a lot logistically harder, <laughs> you can imagine, right. to get the sperm than it would be today. And, and some and, of those unknowns are probably the worst parts. You know, the way you're describing the procedure and how he did it, sperm needed to be used within the hour. That lends itself for people to believe that he did go into the next room and get it himself. Yeah, exactly. So I spoke to one patient named Liz White, who the way she told me is when you're going through artificial insemination, you have to go whenever you're ovulating, which could be on a weekend. So she would go in on weekends and he would be the only person there. And she would get undressed, get in a gown, sit on the table in stirrups, and he would go next door to get the sample. And I can't say exactly what he was doing, but one's mind can imagine what was going on next door, walking through those steps. Like she really felt violated when she realized that. And she told me she felt like she had been raped. Yeah, she felt like she was raped 15 times. Those were the amount of times that she went to go get treatments from him. The unknowns are some of the most difficult parts, how to process it after the truth comes out years later. I mean, her son is like 30-something years old now, and she's having to deal with this. Yeah, he's 36. <laughs> Let's talk about the criminal case that happened against Klein. What were the charges? Because 
you couldn't really charge him for rape or anything like that. It was just two counts of obstruction of justice. And then how did that trial specifically end? Because it didn't really seem like he got quite a big punishment at all. This is one of the most fascinating things to look at in retrospect is that there is no law that specifically says you cannot use your own sperm in your patient. And so when the prosecutor looked at this case, he realized, you know, there were no documents left, so you couldn't charge them with deception or fraud. It didn't really quite fit the definitions of rape or assault. And so he he did find this kind of one slam dunk charge, which is that when Don Klein was first notified of an investigation, he replied saying he had never used his own sperm. So he clearly lied in that case. So he was like, okay, well, I can charge him for felony obstruction of justice, which is a felony. You know, it's not a misdemeanor. Felony is a serious thing. But when he was sentenced, it was something that happened years ago. The judge decided he had to lose his medical license. He had already been retired, so he was not using his medical license. And I think he was ultimately fined about $500. So he was not punished very harshly in the legal sense, but I think it is probably also fair to say, you know, this has been probably pretty rough for his family. And for someone who maybe was a really respected doctor who probably right. cared a lot about his reputation, he's, he's really lost all of that. And that was the big moral dilemma. I mean, he violated the trust of his patients. As you said, there's no law that says he can't use his own sperm, but it's the trust that you have in your doctor. And this was, you know, in the early stages of how artificial insemination works. Now we have the sperm banks and deep profiles of who the donors are. And you can kind of pick and choose by, you know, occupation and hair color and all that stuff. And that's just not the way it was before. So I want to end with all of this because this is one of the the most interesting parts. And it's one of the weirder parts dealing with the fallout of all this, all these siblings, there's about 50 of them now. And I know some are more vocal and some want to kind of keep it more hidden, but it's kind of a small town ish feel where a lot of them still live there. I think you note in the article, uh, somebody was getting a haircut and they said, hey, that's Klein's other daughter or something. And so they run into each other all the time and, and just all the stuff that goes through their heads when they when they see each other. On one hand, they're like, they're worried because like, oh, you know, like, oh my God, like we went to college together. Maybe we could have hooked up or maybe I didn't know it and I hooked That's up with so my sister, weird. right? Yeah. That's so weird. But now they're also, you know, they're, a lot of these people are all there in their, you know, mid to late thirties. They have their own kids. Their kids are getting old enough to date. And I think the thing that, you know, really struck me is when they were saying like, wow, like now every time my kid, you know, has an innocent crush or like chooses a prom day, I'm going to have to think about this. Right. And how is it now with a lot of the siblings? I, I saw in your article that they try to do an annual gathering now. I think it is really fascinating how different siblings have reacted differently. And of course, the people who really wanted to talk or people who you know, really wanted to be very involved with their siblings. There are also people who if they were contacted once when they first took a DNA test and they were like, I don't want anything to do with this. Please don't talk to me anymore. And some people it's become a really part of their lives. They like talk to their sisters and their brothers. This like puts it in a weirdly clinical way. And I don't want it to come across that way, but it's almost kind of like a controlled experiment. You have all these people share 50% of their DNA, but they were raised by different parents. And yeah. it's kind of interesting how they've all turned out differently or like feel sometimes they feel differently about how they were conceived. It puts a whole new spin on the meaning of family and connections. And as you said, just growing up in different situations and environments. Sarah, it's a great article. There's a lot of stuff that we didn't get to talk about in the interview right now. So I suggest everybody read it. The Fertility Doctor's Secret, Sarah Zhang, writer at The Atlantic. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. 
leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.